the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day, and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead, and I'm a California Bar-admitted attorney, and I'm also a bankruptcy law certified specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. So in addition to my JD, I also hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I am a master of the laws of taxation law, and I'm also a master of the laws of intellectual property laws. Now, both of my great master's degrees were obtained from my favorite alma mater, Golden Gate University School of Law, located in one of the most beautiful cities on the planet, San Francisco. Now, because of my training, my experience, and my lifelong interest in business and economics and the role they play in the lives of everyday people like you and me. I primarily practice bankruptcy law, but I also do debt wealth management inside and outside of bankruptcy. I do estates and trusts, real estate, and of course, taxation law. And as I've shared with you many times before, I am proud to say that as part of my practice, I sometimes have the opportunity to seek out and at least attempt to vindicate the rights of seniors been taken advantage of by unscrupulous charlatans in today's marketplace where people think just because you're old, you don't deserve to have your money. And I don't think that's right. So I welcome those opportunities when they fall into my lap. I'm coming to you again today from my continued voluntary lockdown because I care about you as much as I care about me and I don't want to be spreading COVID and I don't want you to give it to me. So I'm in lockdown from my makeshift studios in my home in another great city in the world, the always beautiful city of Oakland, California. And I'm coming to you today to discuss some of the financial and legal issues confronting individuals and families and small business owners. However, I must once again caution you to please note that this show does not provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. That takes a meeting of the minds between you and me, if not a face-to-face meeting. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you to begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you with at least a general outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find qualified professional help to help you with this money issue that you're uh, uh, dealing with right now. And I do that because I think when non-lawyers represent themselves 
in a legal matter, especially one that concerns their finances and their well-being of themselves, their families, and their small businesses, you are setting yourself up, in my opinion. And it's like taking a butter knife to a gunfight. Everybody else in the courtroom is going to be packing, and you're going to be there with your little butter knife. And, you know, you really only need to have a butter knife when you're going to be preparing toast and not defending uh, against a creditor, say, who wants to take your house or your business asset that makes your business a going concern, or you have a need to challenge, say, a creditor who has dealt you a predatory loan. You, there with your butter knife, are likely going to find that your valid claim and your righteous defenses are going to see the promised land way before you do. So I urge you to seek out and find qualified professional help. And this show is all about laying the foundation to do that. So, once again, I share with you the purpose of Selwyn's Law here on this show, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law related to your money and your finances and generally today the lack thereof and things that you need to consider to protect your and or your families and or your small businesses and or your employees' financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational form. Now, with that said, we're going to continue our discussion of entrepreneurship that we started last week. And what do I mean by that? I consider um, uh, entrepreneurship is as a two-sided coin, and that is to say it requires that an entrepreneur analyze both the upside and downside potential of a given business enterprise. This because, to me at least, a business like a human being has a life cycle. And even when that business is on the ascension phase of the life cycle um, and it's following its grand business plan, notwithstanding being in the ascension phase, the business will have intermittent peaks and valleys. And a true entrepreneur will at least have a plan for dealing with both including the need to at least consider filing for bankruptcy if, and more likely when, the business spirals out of control due to some internal or external force, such as a pandemic, that causes the business to end up in a ditch beside the road. This is why I consider entrepreneurship to be a two-sided coin. On the one side, you have your strategic business plan developed to keep the going concern moving forward, while on the other side, the bankruptcy side focuses on the strategies and tactics to get the business or at least as many of the passengers as possible, and those passengers include the human and the inanimate assets, the true value of the business to get them out of the ditch. So, This series of shows, we're going to be looking at the key issues of small business bankruptcy that I believe businesses need to consider that are taken from a book that I've been writing on the subject. Now, while my book was geared towards young lawyers interested in the subject matter because I started writing it as a journal and I used it to teach myself about bankruptcy, which I find to be one of the most fascinating areas of legal practice. But I had to teach myself because I found that most of the practitioners that I would, you know, try to 
you know, get assistance from, they didn't want to share their knowledge because they considered me to be a newbie. And I think, you know, since I use it to train myself, I think it might be helpful and provide some insight to small business owners and their families out there who are listening to this show. Um, because at one time or another, all small business owners are going to find themselves in financial distress. Hopefully, it won't last too long, but then again, it might. And that financial distress, as I've shared with you before, is generally caused by a lack of liquidity. Now, that's when you don't have enough income to pay your bills on time and your creditors start jumping up and down. So this series of shows is looking at the key differences between the two types of bankruptcy that most small businesses should focus on when they run into these liquidity problems. And that is to say the difference between a Chapter 13 bankruptcy and an individual slash small business bankruptcy under Chapter 11. And after we go through this analysis of these two major types of bankruptcy for small businesses, then we want to go and look at a brand new type of small business bankruptcy. It's called Subchapter 5, and it's included in the Chapter 11 site, uh, but it's a hybrid between a Chapter 13, which is for a human being, and a Chapter 11, which is for enterprises. So, again, um, we're going to be walking through a presentation that comes from this manual that I wrote to teach myself about bankruptcy, and the idea is to assist small businesses, help them navigate the maze of liquidity and or reorganization issues that they're going to be confronted with if they decide to file for bankruptcy under Chapter 11 or Chapter 13 of the Bankruptcy Code. And so we're going to be looking at um, it, the information comes from the Bankruptcy Code, it comes from the Federal Rules of Bankruptcy Procedures, and it comes from the applicable appellate and, and, and case law uh, and statutes, and, um, you know, it's just really here to try to help you figure out what it is that you need to do and why you're going through it. So you don't want to be stepping off into the pool without sticking your toe in it a little uh, bit. So the last time we were together, we looked at the differences between 13 and 11 in the areas of the eligibility requirements for each, what the debtor must undertake if she decided once she got in she wanted she wants to get out, how each type of chapter uh, how a case is under each type of chapter, how the case is administered pre- and post-confirmation, and how each type of case deals with collecting the uh, plan payments and paying the trustee who administers the uh, case in, a, in the situation of a Chapter 13 or the Office of the United States Trustee, which is part of the Department of Justice, if you're going the Chapter 11 route. So that's what we're going to get back on course today. But first, in this, the centennial year of the 19th Amendment, which simply states the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. And it was passed by Congress on June 4th, 1919, and ratified by the requisite number of states on August 18, 1920, 100 years ago, next Tuesday, the 18th. So I want to give a big shout-out to California's junior senator, Kamala Harris, 
being the first woman of mixed ancestry who considers herself to be a black woman like me, she's the first woman to be on a major political ticket. And I'm giving her a shout out not because she's a black woman, but because she's competent. And I salute your ambition, and I wish you well and Godspeed. So when we come back, we're going to continue our tour of the difference between chapters 13 and 11. But first, we're going to take a short break, and I'll see you on the other side. Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion of some of the key issues you need to consider when trying to save your distressed business. That is to say, what you need to consider in choosing between a Chapter 13 versus a Chapter 11. So, a big question for me as an attorney is, how am I going to get paid? So, for you as a business owner, you need to know what are your uh, issues and concerns and how are you going to pay your attorney? Because you, you get what you pay for these days. So, if you're considering filing under Chapter 13, there is usually no requirement for prior court approval for your choice of counsel and the paraprofessionals that your counsel uses to help her manage your case. Now, the work performed by the uh, attorney uh, can benefit the debtor directly or the debtor's bankruptcy estate. And again, when you file for bankruptcy, you create an estate that controls and holds all of the assets of the debtor, uh, legal assets, uh, equitable assets. Uh, so that's the estate that your attorney is um, working to benefit. Now, many jurisdictions allow what is known as a no-look fee. For all the debtors, and that, those fees range from $2,500 to $5,000 or so in a Chapter 13, and an additional up to another couple thousand dollars if it's a small business bankruptcy. Okay, and then there can be more add-ons if you if your attorney is going to have to strip off liens uh, um, and uh, deal with special law and motion actions in your case. And if your attorney determines that there needs to be litigation undertaken, which I uh, do quite frequently in my cases, that is to say to go after your creditor or someone who might have absconded with your asset, that's going to be a separate uh, 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 fee arrangement between you and your lawyer. But for the basic bankruptcy, mostly in Chapter 13, there's what is known as a no-look fee, and that's been determined by the judges in the area to uh, to protect the Chapter 13 debtor from some attorneys who might want to take advantage of them. Uh, but no-look fee is not necessarily mandated because it might be a complicated case where um, there's going to be a lot of law in motion and a lot of issues to be dealt with, and so a no-look fee is not appropriate. But lawyers have to have a contract with their um, clients if the matter is going to um, um, generate fees of in excess of $1,000. So I'm, I'm mostly attorneys doing Chapter 13 do use the no-look fee, but again, if this is a business with complicated issues, it might be an hourly rate. That's something that the small business owner and the attorney would negotiate. Okay? Now, 
no-look fees usually require counsel to provide a bundle of services spelled out in the form of the contract signed by both the counsel and the debtor and filed with the court in some instances, again, Chapter uh, 13, not necessarily, but it has to be in writing. And in case there's issues, you want you to have a copy of this signed by the uh, attorney, and the attorney needs a copy signed by you. And sometimes if there's a dispute, um, the court will uh, have a look at that contract in camera, that is to say, uh, in private. Now, some courts allow the entire fee to be paid up front. Others want um, the attorney to take a portion of the fee and have the rest paid through the plan as an incentive to make sure that the um, attorney doesn't just drop the, the Chapter 13 debtor and go off and, and let them sink or swim on their own. I, I, I don't think that's appropriate, and I, I, I guess you, you, if you listen to the show, that shouldn't be a surprise to you. Sometimes I get all my fees up front, but I, I stick it in with my client until we come to a conclusion of the case, either by getting a discharge or, in, in, in a very few instances, um, for my cases anyway, sometimes the case gets dismissed because we find that the debtor cannot um, fulfill their obligations. Okay, now under Chapter 11, retention of the debtor's counsel, her, attor- her uh, accountant, and any other kind of professional must be approved by the court before the start of the representation. Now, Office of the United States Trustee will weigh in on counsel's eligibility and the fairness of the fees. So as I said, in a Chapter 11, there will always be an attorney uh, represented, uh, uh, representing the Office of the United States Trustee to act as that traffic cop to make sure things don't get out of hand. Now, counsel and the debtor in possession, that is to say the debtor in a Chapter 11 is all, becomes there's, there's the creation of the estate and also the debtors, the, the responsible individual, um, they convert into something called the debtor in possession. And they have to have a written contract spelling out the scope of work, the pay rate, and any retainer amount that's uh, provided for. Now, while some courts allow the counsel to disperse the retainer to themselves at the commencement of the case, any fees so dispersed are always subject to disgorgement if the court finds that the work performed provided little or no value to the estate. So I'm going to put a pin in that. That's one of the good things about um, debtors in bankruptcy. The court has an obligation to make sure that counsel performed the work that was necessary, even if 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 it doesn't work and the case gets converted to a seven. The judges have a duty to make sure that uh, the money uh, that's coming from the debtor pre-filing or after the case is filed is not, you know, um, I'm gonna, not going to use that term, but I'm going to use this other term. Make sure that the funds are used appropriately and uh, the, the court maintains the ability to, to tell the counsel you've got to get up off that money and put it back into the estate or put it back into the hands of the debtor. Okay? Now, counsel will only be paid for work that is undertaken for the benefit of the estate and is deemed likely to benefit the estate and not necessarily the debtor. And sometimes I have problems with my um, clients explaining to them who really is my client. My client is the estate that's under the supervision of the bankruptcy court. My client speaks through 
the individual who hired me, the responsible individual, but say the responsible individual wants me to do something that I know is unethical or will harm the estate. I can't do it because that's not in the best interest of my client. My client is the estate. I'm a fiduciary of the estate. So you need to understand that that's one of the issues in a Chapter 11 that sometimes people have a hard time understanding. Okay? There's no such thing as a no-look fee in Chapter 11 litigation for counsel. Fee applications must be itemized and must adhere to the court's own requirements and procedures, as well as the United States trustee's guidelines, and they're highly scrutinized by everybody. So, you know, if you want to practice uh, bankruptcy uh, uh, law, I'm talking to future little girl, especially little girl, black and brown, uh, young women out there who want to be bankruptcy lawyers, you've you got to be prepared to have your uh, uh, fee application scrutinized by everybody and everybody weigh in. And if you can't handle it, you, you might not want to do this kind of work. For a simple individual case with little or no litigation, fees run in the low tens of thousands of dollars. And for more complex cases involving a lot of litigation, the fees can be much, 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 much higher. And that's why a Chapter 11 for a a small business individual case, there's so much work to be done, sometimes it's cross-prohibitive to others. And that's why when we finish our analysis, we're going to look at this hybrid that I talked about, the subchapter 5. Okay? Now, there's something called a co-debtor stay. That's only applicable in a Chapter 13. So what do I mean by a co-debtor stay? A married couple or partner where um, being married um, allows other types of configurations. If, say, a, a piece of real property is owned by a man and wife, and only one of them files the Chapter 13 uh, because of the business. There is a co-debtor stay for jointly held consumer debt, but there's no such thing for a business debt. So there's so if there's consumer debt, say you're filing for bankruptcy to save the house, both parties don't have to file in the bankruptcy. Only say the wife can't. Well, there'll be a co-debtor stay to present prevent the, um, the bank from going after the non-filing spouse. There's a co-debtor stay, stay for consumer debt, including um, most households are considered to be uh, uh, a consumer debt, that is to say the loan on the house. However, if you and your spouse own business assets together, there might not be uh, a co-debtor stay under a Chapter 13. So you keep that in mind. When you're configuring your business from Jump Street, whether you want to be a sole proprietorship or you want to be a corporation or an artificial person. Now, in a Chapter 11, there is no co-debtor stay of any kind, okay? So sometimes individuals have to file a Chapter 11 because they're over the debt limit. Even in that scenario where one of them files and the other one stays out in a 13, there's a co-debtor stay. There is no co-debtor stay in a Chapter 11, so keep that in mind. However, there is case law under some circumstances that may allow a debtor to push the umbrella of the stay to an individual that's so closely tied to the business 
and if that person is susceptible to the actions of a creditor and that would interfere with the reorganization, sometimes a court will push the stay out to the individual, and that might be a spouse. So that's one way, and, and I, in fact, have, have been able to do that. So, But you need to understand that. Okay, and so as we're running out of time, we're going to stop right there, and we're going to pick it up uh, when we get back and, and talk about the United States trustee oversight. So in the meantime, I just want to share with you, we, we here at Selwyn's Law always want to stay on the right side of the law, especially when there's a law that can benefit us in keeping our business together. So until we get together next time, take care. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to SelwynWhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the Law Office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. 